Um, can you please welcome director George Amponsa and producer Dion Walker. Okay, I'm going to open with a couple of questions. I want to talk a little bit about the genesis, but the genesis between the two of you before um, Marcus and Curtis came on board. Did you have some idea of, of what this documentary would be before you kind of spoke to them? The short answer is no. no you know, um, I'd met someone at a party in North London and, um, you know, she told me that she was, uh, you know, a community leader from Tottenham and Broadwater Farm. And this was 2012 and uh, the subject of the previous year's riots came up. And uh, I just, you know, I said to her, I'd be really fascinated as a documentary filmmaker to make a film about people who were, you know, right at the sort of the, the genesis of the riots. And she said, well, she knows two of the childhood friends of Mark Duggan, and she, as far as she knew, they were interested in making a film. So, you know, she put me in touch with Marcus and Curtis. But prior to that, um, you know, it was really a case of just, I was driven by curiosity. Mm more than anything else, as someone who, you know, as a Londoner who saw large parts of my city in flames the year before and, you know, um, you know, the extent to which it spread, I just felt there was, uh, you know, unanswered questions. And um, if, if, to be honest, I was looking for a, a British story to tell because the previous two long-form observational documentaries I'd made were one was set amongst the Congolese immigrant community in Paris and Brussels, and the other was about a tribe of boxers, you know, a, a, a community of people who engage in the sport of boxing emanating from Ghana and West Africa. And I wanted to do something about my home, essentially, you know, and, and uh, so it was, uh, I was just following my nose, following my instincts. I got lucky. So, Dion. Talk to me about how you got involved and what was it that interest you, interested you specifically with this project? I got involved because um, George, uh, so George started to follow uh, Marcus and Curtis and um, quite early on when he showed me the kind of early observational material, um, it was quite moving and quite striking that these uh, young men were willing to show their um, vulnerable side essentially. And I think I got struck by that. Um, I was also interested in, um, and quite immediately thought, well, we, we need to, t to tell, obviously, their observational story. And George is someone that's very used to, to making observational documentary. But um, I think I felt that we also needed to tell a kind of the contextual story as well. And so, um, quite earlier on, there was the idea of making a multi-layered multi film, and um, and I guess that's where we we got into the, the notion of having Marcus. Yeah, you know, in a sense, there's Marcus' narrative, there's Curtis, and then there's this backdrop, so and the historical and so on. Um, yeah. And as you were, were there any sort of ideas that you were you were looking at? perhaps following down that you decided not to follow through, such as sort of looking on the police side? Yeah, yeah um, you know, to begin with, we were, you know, we were open to the possibility of interviewing police officers, um, interviewing politicians. In fact, we, we actually did interview uh, certain police officers, um, uh, a, a 
getting peak for Tottenham, David Lammy, we interviewed. Um, but what became a guiding principle in the film was the Martin Luther King quote, a riot is the language of the unheard. And that's what, as we carried on filming, started to sort of, you know, give us this focus of these two chaps who were, who grew up with Mark Duggan, who kind of basically were Mark Duggan, you know, you could describe the survivors who were in front of our cameras and, as Dion said, were willing to give us this kind of access and this sort of intimacy, and whose voice we realise it's just, you don't really hear it, you know. Yeah. If I'm being honest, I remember sort of at the beginning stages having to go through a process of, of actually saying, no, this, the, these voices are really valid because, you know, you're in the edit suite and you, you when you hear someone saying, you get me, you get me, that many times, you know, I think there's a, probably a, a bit of a knee-jerk, maybe. I don't know if it's to do with Catherine Tate or whatever, you know, mm -hmm. I think it's very funny. But they, I think there's a tendency to immediately dismiss what that person's saying. And um, so that's why the, the Martin Luther King quote really came into focus, so much so that we ended up putting it in, you know, in the film, as, you know, at the beginning of the film. And it was quite crucial at that moment as well to... In, in a sense, I mean, you know, there is that kind of uh, media uh, narrator, so to speak. It's not really, but you get the new news narration in a sense. But, but really, crucially, to have Marcus give these um, interior kind of reflections, um, and and I think that's um, there was a there was a conversation, weren't there, about making sure that his voice was. Yeah, his voice, you know, what, what, one of the things I was taught at film school was if you've got two characters in a film, they shouldn't be doing the same thing. You know, they have to be, you know, ideally two sides of the same coin or opposites or, you know, and, and um, you know, I realised with Curtis, you had someone who's very much of the moment and you can put him in a, a telephone booth on his own and it's just somehow he's going to create some drama. And then, or the wheel of a think, car. <laughs> for instance, and um, you know, and then with this other, with the other chap, his his way of expressing himself is very much, as Dion said, you know, an interior kind of thing, an interior voice, and very reflective. And you know, I realised that with him, the explosions already happened before the movie started, and so everything with him is retrospective. So he was perfect to sort of tell the story in retrospect and not just go back to 2011, but to go all the way back to 1985. And I, I just think, it, you know, in the end it worked well. We did a lot of work on his voiceover. Because some of his voiceover, it wasn't that it was constructed. He said all of those things. Some, some of it, he said it and it was recorded and it was a bit messy. So we re-recorded it. You know, we, here's what you said, made a script, sat him down in a good recording booth and went through it again. And, um, you know, Mark has been the kind of chap he was, or he is, you know, he did it and he, they've both got ways of sedating themselves, shall we say, without going into too much detail. And uh, once he'd done that and, you know, he sat down, he, used, he, used, he spoke really, really quietly. But, and, you know, because we had a great recording equipment at the time, it, it just worked, but we had to really work it. And that's where the 12 month editing period, you know, that, that um, came into effect. Um, I want to come back to Mark Duggan in a moment and um, kind of that's, that, that narrative strand. But stay with Marcus. Um, 
I'm curious about the, I, I remember reading an article recently was talking about riots and saying no group of people ever riots for the same thing at exactly the same time. That you, the first hundred people who riot have a different reason for doing it for the thousandth person or the two thousandth person. Um, and one of the things that I find really fascinating with this film is, is Marx's role and how you highlight that you're right or wrong. Yet he was not there to rob, he was not there to do what the mainstream media presented it. But at the same time, he's not, he's not someone who says, oh, it was me, I didn't do anything. He completely embraces yeah. his actions. Yeah. Um, was it difficult for him to actually talk about that? No, it, it never has been. You know, we were on BBC Radio 4 a couple of weeks ago, and I think possibly the interviewer maybe hadn't seen the film, I don't know, but one of the questions he asked Marcus was, well, are you the person who started the, the UK riots? And, you know, Marcus sort of thought about this. And I don't know if I'm the person who started the UK riots, but possibly I was the person who started the riot in Tottenham. But my agenda was with the police in Tottenham because, as far as I'm concerned, this is something that goes back to 1980 and, um, you know, an ongoing war of vendetta that we have with them. So when they shot Mark, and, and he explained it, you know, when they shot Mark and then they didn't say anything to the family and then two days later no one had, had given any explanation as to why Mark was dead or even confirmed that he was dead to the family and then we went to Tottenham and had a peaceful protest for six hours and no police officer came out and told us anything and then they told us to disperse. That's when I thought, right, I'm going to get a police officer. So he's, you know, really clear about it. And with uh, Mark himself, I, I found it interesting watching this film in terms of watching the media as it unfolded, mainstream media as it unfolded at that point in time, because there was absolutely no doubt, there was no question at all that Mark had a gun with him in the mainstream media. Mm -hmm. Likewise, what I quite liked about this film is that there's just an absolute pure assumption that he did not have that gun. And I find it, 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 it's interesting the way that this film rails and not aggressively, but does rail against sort of mainstream represent, uh, representations of what happened. Well, you know, the, the media story that he had a gun and, well, the, initially that it was a shootout that was retracted two days later. But the thing is, the inquest verdict was that he definitely did not have a gun. So that, you know, the jury concluded he definitely did not have a gun in his hand at the same time as they concluded that he was lawfully killed. And were both of you surprised by the verdict? We've seen the, the, the reactions of people there, but yeah, after working on this for quite some time, yeah. working with them, were you taken aback by the verdict? I was taken aback by the verdict because I went to the inquest on quite a few days. And I just, I couldn't see how, I felt, because there's three options. There's uh, lawful killing, there's unlawful killing, or there's open verdict. An open verdict is a middle ground where you can't say for sure, you know, there's questions that still are unanswered and then this needs to go forward, you know, in terms of the law courts and, you know, I just, I, 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 was, I was shocked and I was kind of shocked that I was shocked because I suppose I just felt that perhaps, I'm, you know, I've, after all these years I'm still not cynical enough. I was, I was surprised, anyway, it's a short answer to that question.
Two questions, actually. One a bit more light-hearted. How many cars does Curtis actually drive? Because I saw him in a BMW, <laughs> a Corsa, and also a BMW Golf. <laughs> uh, and the, um, I guess the second question is a bit more deeper, is really um, from your experience um, through this documentary. And also, um, many of the stories we're hearing from America, and over here there's a real synergy with uh, sort of policemen um, not being convicted, with unbelievable evidence that you know, they are in the wrong. Why do you think there is still this need to sort of protect uh, policemen in this, in this way? Um, so yeah, two questions really. Okay, well, look, well observed, I don't know, you know, in the film, the Curtises seem to be driving about four or five cars, including my old clapped out BMW <laughs> at one point. And, um, you know, there's a scene where he comes out visiting Marcus in prison, not, not when he gets Marcus out of prison, but when he just goes to visit him and he come, gets in the car and he almost gets run over by a bus and then he gets in the car and he's just about to start answering questions and then I use my electronic window <laughs> switch to wind the window up and he kind of looks up because it's so creaky and he kind of, it always makes me laugh but anyway um, <clears throat> so and there was a hire car we got for him to go and pick up Marcus from prison and there was his beloved Volkswagen Carrada and that's the one that he's racing the red Volvo in. I'm quite glad that he's lost, he's been divested of the Volkswagen Corolla, and I don't know what he's, you know, um, he hasn't quite been divested of his driving licence yet. But anyway, um, uh, you know, you, the second question, honestly, I don't know. I mean, you know, there's a side of me that thinks because they, you know, that's, they are the, I guess, enforcers of the state. They, you know, that's, they have to, you see, personally, I just think if at certain times they, there was some indication that, okay, we've made a mistake or this officer has acted wrongly and we acknowledge that and we, uh, this, this, and that officer is being held to account. I can only see that that would um, create more trust between the members of the public and the police who are there to serve them. I just don't see why, as you say, there just seems to be this constant knee-jerk closing of ranks and protecting officers and you know, allowing them to, to, to basically be unaccountable for any wrong actions. Extending that question, um, there appears to be every year now even more than that, some kind of investigation into rough justice in the past. Do you think there's going to be a tipping point where the law enforcement agencies actually realise sooner or later people are going to get to the truth, so we may as well just put our hands up now rather than wait 10 years for that investigation okay. to actually prove to be... I know I'm, I'm sounding probably <laughs> very naive at this point. Um, but, but the fact that it always ends up worse off I mean, do you mean in terms of like you have Hillsborough, Hillsborough or Plebs, yeah. Plebsgate or, you know, yeah. where eventually the, the truth comes out? Eventually, yeah. Um, or to people just in the way that someone might commit a crime, they don't commit a crime thinking they're going to get caught. I'm not sure, in, in my view, I don't think you'll get the perpetrator will just reveal himself. I think that they'll continue to try to hide, but I think perhaps you find a change in culture, certainly with the new police officers that's coming in, um, there may well be a culture where you see a sense of, well, you know, if the police 
officer is corrupt or if they, they see some form of bad behaviour, there's, there's a better culture to say, well, they need to, to, to speak about that as opposed to closing ranks. Maybe that, that, that will change um, as a result of some of these recent investigations. Also, I wonder if, and I know we're, we are very different from America, but it seems to be the grand jury investigations in certain states in America now, there's a discussion and I know in one recent case, um, one officer has, they, the, the judge has just said, we're not doing a grand jury investigation. This person is going to be held up on um, a homicide charge. Mm. Uh, it, do you think that these, these kind of investigations should be removed? After all, these people are not above the law. Mm. They, they should abide by the same laws that everyone else does. And therefore, if they've shot someone, should they not just be the trial in the same way that everyone else has to undergo one? Absolutely, you know, absolutely correct. And, um, you know, I think one thing that maybe might start to change things is the technology. Uh, I don't know if it may be because I'm in, involved in, you know, camera work and filming, but I just think, you know, like the technology on a, the thing that's changed is the ability for members of the public to record these events. I don't think what's changed is that these things are happening now suddenly in a way they weren't. 50, 100 years ago. But I just think, um, you know, um, <clears throat> it's going to get to a stage where as soon as you hold up a mobile phone in your hand, that officer will be aware that not only are you filming, but you're also broadcasting or streaming, whatever you want to call it. And I think that could really sort of, you know, start to change things. And it, it's something that I find really meaningful because there's every possibility that Mark Duggan had a mobile phone in his hand. Because 15, 30 seconds before he was shot, he made a phone call. He sent a text message. And, um, you know, I think it's going to get to say, well, when you do this with a mobile phone in, in your hand to a police officer, that police officer will be well aware that you're very likely filming and broadcasting that, what's the, that incident live. There was so, a, 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 a column that came out around that I think it was about two or three weeks after um, the shooting and said, how is it that we're constantly told that we're the most surveilled country in the world, there are CCTV cameras on every single street, and yet they managed to pick the one street where there seemed to be no CCTV cameras exactly. recording this. Exactly. We have another question. Someone in the middle and then we'll go further back. Hi, yeah, congratulations. Yeah, really good film, really good film. Um, I've got one's a question and one's a statement, really. I mean, I'll start with the statement really first, which is just about the, there's so many layers to the film as well. It's not just, obviously, it's the story of Mark Duggan and the story then it turns into of Marcus and Curtis, but also the, the element on it which looks at, you see Curtis's job struggle as well. I mean, that's so sad and as in really heartbreaking. He's trying so hard to go do, do the right thing and be on the straight and narrow and all the jobs that he goes for and just the impact and all that. So I think there's so much of another story and another, you know, your, your point about giving people their, their voice and, and letting these people be heard is so important. And it's really, I think it's, that is really a valid part of the film as well to demonstrate how hard these guys are trying and the fact that they come out the other end and, you know, Marcus is mentoring and, uh, and, and Curtis is, has changed his life and got a different kind of job. And, you know, all of that is just so much to be applauded. So that's a brilliant side of it as well. Um, I wanted to ask really about your, your kind of in point and out point of the films as well, because my question really is when you start documenting something like that, how do you know when to get out? 
when you're, you must get so involved in it, and um, there's so much going on, you know, how, you know, it, do you kind of feel, I don't know, do you feel like a wrench when you actually have to stop filming and then start, and, you, and again, you must have had so much content as well to then be editing and tooling through, so it's a long-winded question, but I'm interested to know when you know, now's the time. Uh, some of that is um, actually genuinely to do with the editing because, um, you know, it, it, it's, a, it's a case of when, to, when you know when to stop editing. And, um, you know, with documentaries, you're kind of writing the story in the edit. But, you know, I knew the film was finished and uh, we'd arrived at an end point when, you know, the, basically the character arcs, the two, Marcus and Curtis's character arcs were both completed. So, you know, one chap starts off the movie saying, I've always hated the police. And by the end of the film, he's going to see a police officer in order to help mentor young children. And then the other chap said, well, you know, I used to be able to make 500 pound a day doing crime, but now I want to just get an honest job. And, you know, by the time you see him cleaning toilets, you know that for me, okay, we've, we've, we've got an ending. Um, I, I'd like to say congratulations both as well. I thought it was an absolutely great film. Uh, and I thought obviously the issues behind it are, are significant, but I, I love the personal to it. And I thought your sense of judgment about letting us get to know them, both characters and families and so on, was excellent. Can I just ask you what, I'm just curious about what proportion of your life this took over? Because what, like many great documentaries made over a long period of time, you know, we wait the whole of the prison sentence and and the fun we have following his mate during that and everything. For you personally, is it an exclusive thing? I mean, obviously you're in, in and out of their lives to a certain degree, but how does that work? And this, just secondly, I wanted to know if the film had in fact been shown in America mm. for obvious reasons. Okay. Um, it has been shown in America. It had its American premiere in Minneapolis, uh, ironically, about three months ago. Uh, and it was really well received and, you know, prior to what's just happened recently in Minneapolis, uh, you know, one of the, the person who took me from the airport to the film festival said, oh yeah, we had a police shooting, your film's going to be very relevant here, because we had a police shooting of an unarmed black man who had his hands cuffed behind his back last December, and that almost started a riot. And that was just, I was just blown away by this. And then equally, the Minneapolis audience were blown away by the hard stop, because you know, a lot of Americans still don't see London in this light at all. You know, it's just really amazing, amazing to them. Uh, so, um, and then um, your other question, uh, well, it's, I mean, this has been four years of our lives. Uh, I don't know if your question was, do, have I just worked on it exclusively? Kind of, but, yeah. I mean, yeah, it, it's you know, this sort of documentary, you don't, you can't make a living, you can't pay your bills doing this sort of thing. So I've, I've done a lot of television, and I've tended to do a lot of, um, I guess you could say, crime-related kind of TV, commercial TV stuff. Like I've done historically, Donald McIntyre's Toughest Towns. Um, I've, um, and all the way to recently, Ross Kemp's Extreme Worlds. Uh, and then the last few years while I was doing this, I'm, I tried to make sure I was doing quite a lot of edit producing jobs. So I was just in the edit suite. I wasn't going out to far-flung countries just so I could do, you know, the TV stuff that pays the bills and also keep working on the hard stop. What about the emotional toll? Um, it's one of the things that really fascinates me about the distinction between 
many documentary filmmakers and, and, and narrative filmmakers, you, you, you invest years in narrative film, but once it's completed, that's it, it's done, and you might move on to another project. But your, your stories, your narratives are continuing, they're out there living their lives. Um, and, and we've had Kim Longinotto here talking about that and sometimes saying it, it is difficult because you have your own life to, and your own career to pursue, but at the same time, you've invested yourselves in these people's lives. Yeah, but I, I can't tell you how relevant that is as a question or a statement right now. We're going through that now and it's, you know, just because you've made a film about people such as Marcus and Curtis, that it, it doesn't mean to say their lives are suddenly transformed. I mean, their li life goes on and, you know, the same struggles that you see in a movie are struggles that they, they're continuing. The demons that Marcus talks about at the end that he's got to wrestle with, he's still wrestling with them, um, you know. But we've also seen some really amazing stuff. I mean, we've just done a road show of the film. And last week, we went, I was telling you earlier, we went to Birmingham, uh, Bristol, Nottingham, and Manchester. And, you know, we've seen Marcus and Curtis actually really grow into the roles of spokespersons for this issue. You know, not just for Mark Duggan and Broadwood Farm and their community, but for the, this whole issue. And, um, you know, they've been to Toronto and spoken to audiences. And, you know, it's. Uh, and I, th I believe there'll be more of that because you know this subject matter is seemingly becoming more and more relevant every week in America as well as here. And um, you know, so there will be more screenings out there. And um, you know, the, you know, but just in terms of reversing a you know a, a lifetime of what they've grown up in and what they've been through and what happened to their, their childhood friend and what's still happening to them. Uh, that's, uh, that takes more than you know, a documentary movie. And of course, you know, we've got a relationship with them which is, is not just professional, of course. You can see that probably in the movie. But um, We do feel yeah. responsible to, um, I suppose, as you say, support them, support their efforts uh, um, and um, we're trying to do that I mean certainly in terms of but, but the project is more is, 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 is bigger than Marcus and Curtis we also you know it's a community thing and it's obviously clearly about equalities and the you know and stuff and so we, we present that discussion to them as well is that as so in, in as well as the personal there's the idea of um, the context, the social context, and that the film is is speaking to that. And so what, what about this week? It's like, you know, and yeah, so that so next week it'll be the fifth anniversary of the riots, and we've we've supported um, a screening at at the community, and Marcus is organising that. That's something that he's wanted to do, and we'll, we support that. And talking about screenings now. Um, the, what was the Marx family's reaction like, and both Curtis and Marx's reaction to the film when they first saw it? Uh, well, what were your nerves like before the film screened? I mean, I, the first time we showed it to Marx and Curtis was in an edit suite in Dawson. And um, Marcus, you know, he, he started crying at the end of it. You know, which is something that, it was for me, it was quite moving, because that remind, took me back to the first time I met him. Because the first time I met him, where he, he was working in Hammersmith Hospital at the time, and you know, it was, that was about June 2012. So he still had, he hadn't, he'd just been arrested and he was out on bail, so he had an electronic tag around his ankle that you see in the movie. 
but he was still working. So I met him with Curtis, and it was the first time we met. And I just asked him to tell me the story of what happened to Mark on the 4th August. And he told me the story. And as he told me the story, he started crying. But, he, you know, he didn't lose control. But, and I didn't think, oh, well, this, you know, he seems like a bit of a weakling. Because, you know, I've, I was kind of quite used to seeing those sort of characters from the kind of Ross Kemp type things that I told you about. But what I wasn't used to is just seeing those sort of characters willing to show that kind of vulnerability. I hadn't seen that before. So it was, uh, you know, when he saw the final, when he saw the rough cut, and he saw something in, in 90 minutes long, he started weeping because for him it was a relief and it was a feeling of, okay, this is worthwhile because at that time he just, he'd come out of prison and he was, uh, you know, in his few months and there was a side of him that I think felt maybe he had made a mistake revealing all of this stuff before going to prison when he thought he might be looking at eight years and he maybe he'd left himself too vulnerable and maybe I wasn't what he thought I might be. And he just, uh, you could see the relief. So that was a good feeling. What was a bit more hairy was uh, later on showing it to the family and the Tottenham community. That was the first public screening we did. And um, we did it in Tottenham. And uh, that was very nerve wracking. And uh, it was, uh, the response was just amazing, to be honest. I, I just couldn't believe it. And, um, you know, afterwards I remember, because there was Mark's family, but there was also some of the, the guys from Tottenham, the Tottenham man, and whatever you want to call them, in the audience. And, you know, I remember trying to sort of skulk out of the back after the screen. <laughs> and they said, no, you, you, you guys, we want a Q&A now. Get, you know, and so there was an instant get on stage and we've, we've got some questions for you. And uh, there was just, I don't know, there was constant applause and they just loved it. And another thing I noticed as well in that screen was there was a lot of laughter throughout. You know, we, we know that the film's got bits of humour in it and quirky, but they just seemed to find it hilarious. And, I thought, what's this about? And Stafford Scott explained it to me. He, and what he said was, look, these people don't need you and your film to come and tell them about the misery and the tragedy of their lives, because you know, we've lived it. We already know that. But for, for us, it's really good to see two of our own up on the big screen. And that was quite a nice to get that response as well. How are we going to stop this from happening? Because I have watched this, I was a youth worker in the 70s when we had riots in Notting Hill and this is all I've seen in my life. And we don't, I personally have seen no difference in the way the police behave at all. Well, I mean, you know, I don't know if it'll make any difference, but one thing we're clear about, and when I say we, all of us, Marcus and Curtis included, is that we want to screen our film to a room full of police officers. And, you know, it's looking like that will definitely happen. And, it, you know, even on the roadshow, like in Birmingham, Manchester, Bristol, Nottingham, I think actually on each one of those stops, because it, that, is, that subject came up in the Q&A, afterwards, on each occasion, someone from the audience came up and said, I think I might have a contact for you within the local police. Because as far as we're concerned, this film hopefully is something that can start to get a dialogue going. Uh, because, you know, community policing should be community policing. There should be police officers who are known to the community or the community who, who can actually, you know, cut past this sort of hostility or this sort of 
kind of, you know, this, this, these feelings of hatred. And, um, you know, it's just, I don't know if, if, if it's getting worse or, you know, I, I, I can't believe it's getting worse. I don't think it's worse than it was in the 80s. You know? it's, um, we had a discussion a couple of weeks ago in a, in a cinema up the road and there's this really superb woman, a young woman in the audience, who said, mm -hmm. look, it's all about education. Um, and, and both sides, um, there needs to be some kind of education in place that brings people together. And I, it struck me watching this again the other day that the, the two sides of Curtis when he's disrespected because he just wants to go and collect his dog and he's furious and you can see that as funny as he is and he's got that, that amazing kind of elastic humour, it's also a pent-up rage at the other end of a scale. But then there's someone, one of the guys, when he goes back, helps him. And, it, and then he, he actually is able, he feels free enough to be able to say, look, the previous guy's a real arse. Right. And um, it's, I, I thought that was an amazing moment to include I, in the film. I'm really glad you, you mentioned that because, uh, you know, my twin brother was in the audience in, in Manchester and he's, he's an ex-military person. And he pointed out that, look, your film, for all the doom and gloom, there's a, there's a couple of moments of real... Um, of something that it could be a, a, a beacon of hope or something progressive. And one of the moments is Marcus at the end talking to the ex-police officer, but the other moment is Curtis when he goes to get his dog. Because, and believe me, Curtis is, a full, as much as an affable guy is and funny, he is quite capable of banging out a police officer, in, unfortunately. And, but you just see, it's almost like two different people, because when the second police officer just shows him that bit of respect that he's talking about, that Curtis is talking about, you see a completely different person, and that's a person that I'm used to seeing. And you just think, well, that's all it takes, is you know. And uh, but the flip side of that is really a very quite a scary proposition, isn't it? Especially when you think about that in the context of what you know what could happen in the next riots. Um, I think we are actually out of time now. Please join me in thanking John and George.